Welcome to the Inside Nature Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Olson, digital producer for Nature. Regular listeners might recall that earlier this year, we spoke with Barbara Taylor, a marine biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Barb studies the vaquita, the most endangered porpoise in the world. Scientists estimate there are only around 30 individuals left in the Gulf of California, the slim body of water that separates mainland Mexico from the Baja Peninsula. Barb told us about an ambitious, last-ditch effort to save the species. Here's a basic outline of the program, now dubbed Vaquita CPR. Step 1. Round up the remaining vaquitas and move them into holding pens. There they are safe from gillnets, which ensnare and drown many vaquitas each year and are responsible for their decline. Step 2. If the vaquitas can handle living in captivity, a big question mark, a breeding plan is put into place and the vaquitas' numbers are gradually increased. Step 3. Someday, when the gulf is free of gillnets, a healthy population is returned to the wild and the vaquitas live happily ever after. Sounds simple, right? Well, not really. For one, the vaquita, nicknamed the ghost porpoise, may be the shyest and most elusive cetacean in the world. If you're lucky enough to even see one, it's probably from miles away on a boat through a huge pair of binoculars. This October, the first part of the vaquita CPR plan was put into action. Capture the remaining vaquitas and remove them from the Gulf of Mexico. We touched base with Barb Taylor and Francis Gulland, the veterinarian responsible for the care of captured vaquitas, to find out how things went. Barb, welcome back to the Inside Nature podcast. And Francis, uh, welcome to the Inside Nature podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. Pleasure to be here. So operations for the Vaquita CPR project commenced on October 12th, I believe, and ended on November 11th. Um, Overall, how did it go? Well, I'll I'll start by giving a bit more background as to sort of the elements that had to go into this monumental effort uh, to try to, you know, take vaquitas into the emergency room. And, of course, if you're going to be capturing animals, a very rare animal, um, you have to be able to find them. Um, You have to be able to have the expertise to capture them. And you have to have the facilities all ready to be able to take care of them. So there, even though our, our efforts on the water started on the 12th, um, there has been a great deal of preparation in building the, the facilities uh, that are going to be able to take care of these, you know, precious animals um, if we were lucky enough to capture them. So there was a tremendous amount of preparation work. And Scientists came in from all around the world. There were uh, 65 scientists that came from uh, eight different countries, um, people with expertise from uh, the Netherlands in terms of, you know, and being able to take care of porpoises uh, from uh, uh, Hong Kong who cared for finless porpoises. There was a team of capture experts that came um, from Greenland and Denmark. Um, that had captured harbor porpoises there. So all of these uh, amazing talents were brought to bear on October 12th, and that was the date that we actually set forth in the water. Mm. And and we did exceptionally well at uh, certain parts of the uh, operation. We had 
uh, the Mexican acoustic team um, that had put out a whole array of these acoustic detectors so that uh, they could tell us where uh, vaquitas where we should look for vaquitas. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had an array of like the most experienced vaquita observers in the world that had come back to Mexico um, that were able to use these uh, enormous, uh, powerful binoculars to be able to find the vaquitas and keep track of them. Um, and we did really well when we got good weather um, at actually finding them and even getting the the uh, the catch team um, close enough so that they could see them. The first day of effort, we were able to accomplish that. And we also had a, a tool that everyone heard about, which was the, the Navy Dolphin right. um, that were working alongside that were uh, part of the effort because we didn't know how well our, our fine team was going to perform and our catch team, but it turned out the fine team and the catch team um, did very well. And, and in fact, the first capture of Vaquita uh, happened, you know, after only a few days of effort. So th- that part of it was very successful. And I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over to Francis here <laughs> to talk more about the actual capture part because I was on, yeah. the, on the big ship um, so I wasn't a uh, part of the team that then uh, actually caught and handled the animals. Yeah, that's one thing I was really interested to know is how the vaquitas were actually captured. I mean, what's the process to, you know, actually grab them from the water? So as Bob says, the what went really well was the, the finding and the, and the catching. Mm-hmm. Um, to find them, we we set off in the morning to areas that we knew were places that Vaquita visited regularly and had been heard through the acoustic monitoring array that had been out. So we were essentially guided to, a, if you like, a hotspot for, for Vaquita presence. Mm-hmm. And then when we got there, if the waters were calm, um, I was on one of the capture, the net boats, and we were guided to the spot where um, where Bob could actually um, spot Vaquitas using the big eyes. And when I say Bob, she mentioned her team of you know, expert vaquita spotters who have worked on vaquita um, visual surveys for, for years before this. So they could spot vaquita from a couple of miles away from the, from the big eyes, these big binoculars. Mm-hmm. And they could guide us into the spot. And then once there, if the water was really calm, we could actually see vaquitas pretty easily. And that was surprising to us. We thought it was going to be very hard to see them. But in fact... We could, we could see them easily, and we could stick with them and follow them. I just wanted to back up real quick. Um, we mentioned the Navy dolphins, but I never heard how they were involved in the actual capture process. Um, we were unsure how easy it would be to actually find and follow the vaquita. Mm-hmm. And so the Navy dolphins were trained to detect vaquitas when they were underwater and then mark their presence by leaping out of the water and doing a, a bow or a, or a, a porpoise, if you like. Um, and in fact, what happened was um, Bob's team on her big eyes were really so successful at, at, at observing the vaquitas and guiding the small boats in that the dolphins hardly ever had a chance. Um, they, did, they did find vaquitas successfully on the day that we caught the adult female, um, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this dolphin doing these fantastic leaps out of the water and signaling, you know, I found her, I found her. But at the same time, we'd also already seen the um, vaquitas. So once we 
we were confident that we we were with them. Um, the the catch team who were um, Danes from Denmark, and they've used this technique for catching harbour porpoises successfully in in off Greenland and off Denmark. They set a very fine salmon gill net, a very mm-hmm. very fine light net, and we had several of these that we set at angles around the spots where we saw the vaquitas. And then we had two separate boats that essentially did, did wheelies and so made a noise um, and disturbed the vaquitas so that they moved towards the net. And the hope was that they would get entangled in the net as hubbopopoises did. And this was really one of the big unknowns for us because we know that vaquitas are, are dying because they, they're, they're drowning in gill nets. So we were concerned and had a lot of precautions in place for what would happen if a, if a vaquita did hit the net and did start to drown. But instead, the um, the animals that we caught, we caught a six-month-old animal and an older female, um, as well as a couple of other animals that were caught in the net and got away. But all those animals, once they hit the net, they were actually calm and they were able to swim at the surface, loosely wrapped in the net, but the net was fine enough that didn't hold them underwater. Mm-hmm. So they could breathe and they remained calm until we could bring a soft-sided boat over to the side um, adjacent to the vaquitas and then bring them onto the net, onto the net boat. So that, um, that whole technique was developed, as I said, for hubble porpoises and we, were, we really didn't know until we started whether that would work. Um, it hasn't been successful, for example, Dahl's porpoise that are a much more flighty species. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, it worked. The animals were calm, and we then lifted them from the water onto a purpose-built stretcher in a soft-sided box um, in which they were transported from the net site um, to the facilities that we'd built um, in the in the bay just off San Felipe. So there we had two options to place the vaquitas in, in the temporary sanctuary. One was a net pen that had been originally designed for tuna, and the other was a soft-sided pool that was land-based that we wanted um, to have really as a backup in case there were you know, bad weather hurricanes that could make the use of a, of a net pen at sea you know, un- unusable due to weather. So let me, so let me, the, let me, let me stop you there. So, you know, you, you, you captured a vaquita, right, which has never been done before. I mean, that's amazing in and of itself. Um, such an elusive animal. Um, what was it like interacting with with the vaquita? I mean, what were you feeling, or what were there any surprises? I would say that uh, you know, the, sort of as a scientist and a veterinarian, um, I was just completely focused on monitoring respiration and breathing. But mm-hmm. overall, there was just incredible emotion of, oh my goodness, we've actually succeeded in catching one, and also to see one actually close and actually see the, you know, the eye and the, the, the ring around the eye and its little black lips and all the features that we've talked about, the ketos and why they're such an attractive animal was, for me, it was incredible to see this live, beautiful, perfectly formed young animal when um, all the other vaquitas I've seen have been dead and drowned in gillnets. Right, so right. I've, I've actually personally touched nine vaquitas and, uh, seven of those had drowned in gillnets and were dead. So this was just a phenomenal experience to to see and handle a live, healthy vaquita. Yeah. Because typically these animals, I mean, 
you're seeing them from hundreds of yards away on, with binoculars, right? I mean, this is, this is really unprecedented. Well, in Bob's case, several miles away with binoculars. <laughs> yeah, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I mean, I'm jealous and I'm happy I'm not in Francis's position in, in many respects, when we, especially when we talk about the second individual. But, yeah. you know, the whole team that had been there, you know, the visual team that's worked with these animals since 1997, the acoustics team, I mean, we were ecstatic. We were so filled with hope, you know, that we actually could help this animal that's, you know, basically in the emergency room. So there certainly was a, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, we took the chance and, and we are very optimistic at, at this point that, you know, we really, we really had, had something that was really going to help the species. Right. So, um, when we transported the, the six-month-old calf, that was the first animal that we caught, and we took, um, took her to the soft-sided lamb-based pool because um, at that point we were concerned about um, her size and the suitability of the, the offshore pen. And once in the pool, she just began to swim very fast around the sides of the pool and was very agitated. Now, this was our very first Vaquita ever to have in a pool, and we could tell by her length and by the time of the year that she was probably about six months old, which is weaning time for Vaquitas. And the big question for us as both you know, veterinarians, biologists, with experience in other species is if she was at the weaning period, you know, sort of drawn out weaning, it's not sudden, would she be more adaptable to a change in, in sort of life conditions and being away from from her mother because she was at a time when she'd start exploring and feeding, so she'd be quite suitable to this change and mm. placing her in a pool. Right. Or would she be, you know, stressed by suddenly being separated from her mother? And that was really, you know, again, complete unknown because we were starting from a background knowledge of theory of the species. So based on how agitated she was over a couple of hours, um a group of us, we had several vets and several biologists all there. We thought, well, she looks like she's going to be more in the agitated side. So this isn't a good animal to, to start on a, mm. on a captive breeding uh, program. So we decided to take her back out to the, to the refuge and to release her at the site where we'd last seen the, the other animal that we assumed would be the mother. So we took her back there and released her again because we didn't want to continue the, the stress. And yeah. one... Um, one uh, sort of, to minimize risk, one plan that we'd always had would be to do this program in a stepwise manner where we'd assess the animal's response to being pursued, to being caught, to being entangled in a net, to being transported, to being housed. And at any point, if an animal appeared stress, we would release them back to the, back to the refuge so that we would you know, minimize the impact of the population. So that's essentially what we did with her. Yeah. And that left us with this question of, okay, so is this going to be a species-specific response to being enclosed, or is this just a young, you know, weaning-age animal that was suddenly separated from her mother? So you alluded to this, but you, you did end up catching a second individual, and could you just tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yes, um, so we caught a, a second animal. In fact, we caught two animals that day in the oh. net. Um, one immediately escaped, and the second animal stayed, again, very loosely wrapped in the net, very calm at the surface. So she, um, she was, again, transported back to, to the shore, and this time we took her to the 
met Pen. She was a larger animal, and we thought she'd be more um, more suitable to this large floating net pen that was just offshore. And throughout the the transport, she was incredibly calm, much calmer than the than the previous um, calf. And her respiration was steady, and her heart rate was steady. And we had an ultrasound machine to monitor her her lungs and and heart and. Um, we all felt very confident that here was uh, an adult female. We checked to make sure she didn't have any milk so that she wasn't leaving a dependent calf behind. We also checked with the ultrasound that she wasn't pregnant so we wouldn't be risking transporting a, a pregnant animal. So she was neither of those, so she was clearly just a, a single adult female. So probably an ideal animal to protect for population purposes. So, mm-hmm. so here she was, calm, and we took her over to the the net pen and um, lowered her from this stretcher that we transported her in in a, in a, pool, in a little box containing water. And we lowered her into this net pen and she immediately swam at full tilt towards one of the sides. It's a circular pool towards the side. And then the first time she, she hit that net and then but bounced off and that was why we had designed it with a very soft mesh mm-hmm. that was only an inch square so that she couldn't get, become entangled or, or hurt herself. So she turned around and sort of bounced back and obviously realized what was happening, then swam towards the other side, again, extremely rapidly, but then began to swim in these diameters across the pool, and just before she would get to the side, she would do a really fast somersault-type um, uh, turn, um, like almost like an Olympic swimmer, just really rapid turn at the last minute. So she was obviously recognizing the net before she hit the side and was realizing you know, the, the boundaries of this pool, so, again, we had about um, 12 people around the pool who all got extensive experience with um, other species of porpoise and, and pelagic dolphins. So we were all very hopeful that she was recognizing the sides and that she would be adapting to this, this enclosure. Um, and instead, after about half an hour, she actually went very limp in the middle of the pool mm. and just seemed to be either exhausted or, or undergoing some sort of um, startlement or I mean we can't speak to Avakita's brain but she, she was sort of not not going towards the sides anymore but just remained still so that immediately gave us you know, a lot of cause for concern and we thought uh oh she's either exhausted or she's not liking this and, and again to be precautionary we decided to, to release her you know, we best thing we can do is to not, not make anything the situation worse so we we got into the pool, we took her out of the pool and over to a boat that we had just beside the pool. Mm-hmm. And we released her over the side of the boat and she swam away at full tilt. But instead of then continuing to swim and slowing down and, and returning to the to the waters of the upper gulf, she did a U-turn, came back mm-hmm. and was just about to crash into the side of the boat when several people caught her. And as they caught her, they realized that she'd stopped breathing and um, they pulled her up onto the onto the boat, where myself and several other vets, especially um, Dr. Cynthia Smith, who was um, leading this the, the effort. Um, at that point, she had a uh, cardiac arrest and, and was not breathing. Wow. So we incredibly managed to resuscitate her. We intubated her. We put her on oxygen. We literally did CPR, where we had um, we got her heart going again, and for three hours did. You know, cardiopulmonary um, resuscitation. We had our intravenous fluids, but all to, to no avail. So um, after three hours of, of trying to resuscitate her, we at the, at the 
another cardiac arrest. We um, we let her go and, and declared her dead. So wow. that was just, uh, um, I think, devastating as an <sighs> understatement for the feeling that we all felt at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's so sad. Um, so um, on your website, I noticed that you were going to um, perform a necropsy, which is a sort of a animal version of an autopsy to figure out what had happened. Uh, Are there any Mm -hmm. results from that that you can share? Yes, well, we we actually did the necropsies straight away because Mm -hmm. um, another sort of conservation measure that we we had planned for is, you know, if if in the eventuality animal should die, we um, had plans to recover the, the ovaries, the gametes, so they could be stored for posterity at San Diego has a a zoo called the Frozen Zoo for Critically Endangered Species. And we also recovered um, uh, samples of, of skin and some organs to establish cell lines so we can continually reproduce cells um, to recover genetic material in the future. So we immediately did the, the, the necropsy. And on that, that was you know, in the middle of the night, that night, um, the only obvious features were that she had a very um, pale patches on the heart um, she did have food in her stomach, and she she wasn't pregnant and she wasn't lactating. So again, mm-hmm. that gave us some comfort that we hadn't left a, a, a calf behind. Right. Um, so we're currently waiting for the histology, which is basically looking at the tissues under a microscope once they've been fixed in formalin, and that gives you details of the cellular structure. So those results should be coming in this week. But I can tell you from other dolphins that have died, you know, suddenly one of the most common features is is really a heart attack is is death of the cardiac muscle mm-hmm. due to stress mm. so that's really what we're we're thinking at the moment the histology results will give us a bit more um on timeline of when that stress started and if there was some initial stress in the net that we didn't recognize um or whether it was all just due to the stress of being enclosed um so i mean it really looks like uh and this is an understatement that these animals don't do well in captivity is there anything else that you learned or gained from this project i would i would say as you said at the beginning is is that we've learned how to to catch them and transport them so Mm -hmm. you know currently the only place we could put them with these two um the net pen and the soft-sided pool that there are examples of other porpoises, such as the, you know, the finless porpoise in China, that the animals have been translocated. So, you know, if there had been, or if you know, if there was an option to have part of the vaquita refuge, like, like a, a bay or something that was essentially cordoned off from illegal fishing, that would be an option. But the obvious way, the obvious thing here is to turn that argument on its head and say we really need to make the refuge itself the enclosure. So rather than having a physical boundary for the vaquita, we need to right. keep people with nets out of, the, of that area. So given we haven't got a, um, a lagoon or a, a bay that we can protect, the, the only option now is to really double up efforts to get all gill nets out of that upper of the gulf yeah. where the vaquitas are and, to, and really enforce that. And, that's and a, I think one yeah, one ahead. topic we haven't really mentioned here is, is not just were we successful in finding, catching, and transporting the vaquitas. Um, I think our, our presence in the in the vaquita refuge really gave a, a boost. 
you know, locally to the community and then internationally to, you know, efforts to enhance enforcement, um, it really brought attention to the plight of the, of the vaquita. So yeah. I think we all really hope that, that that too may help with enhanced enforcement and um, efforts to remove gillnets. Another few important items that we learned in the process, one of was that these were really healthy looking animals and we did see several mothers with full calves ready to fledge, you know, to ready ready to take off on their own and 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 that was really encouraging to see that these animals, even though the population has been uh reduced dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't know it, looking by at the individuals, they look like really healthy individuals. So, you know, the biologists have been saying all along, if you just stop killing them, there's no reason to believe that the species can't come back. And, and, and I still feel very strongly that that is the case, that, that we, aren't, we aren't worried about a, a population that's compromised. There were no skinny vaquitas out there. They're having calves. And so, you know, that part of it should give us hope. I think another really important lesson um, globally um, is that part of the reason that we um, had to suspend operations was that, you know, if you have an individual or two um, die and your population is, you know, a few handfuls of individuals, it is tragic and you just can't afford to learn. And I think everybody on the recovery team, if we if we could have seen the future even five years ago, um, we would have pushed much harder to do some captures of Akita so that we could learn these lessons about what they need to survive um, outside of being in their wild natural habitat when, you know, it wasn't so critical. And I think if we're going to, you know, be serious about learning from this experience. We need to be talking about river dolphins and other coastal species that are in the same boat. And and we have to recognize that it just takes longer to change human behavior than a lot of these species have. And if we want to have all the tools that we can bring to bear in saving the species, um, we we need to act sooner uh, than we than we did with vaquitas. That was Barb Taylor and before her Francis Gullant. To learn more about the plight of the vaquita, check out the resources in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the Inside Nature podcast on iTunes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, I'm Eric Olson. <laughs>